episode of the Mark Groves podcast. This past couple weeks have been just so filled with love and gratitude, not only just for the delicious nature that is life, but also for all of you, for how you've shown up, how you've sent me messages, how you've expressed love and support. And that feels really great, I got to tell you. And I didn't want to record a solo episode about my breakup a couple weeks ago when I released it. If you haven't listened to it, it's called um, Relationship Endings Aren't Failures. But I knew intuitively I had to. My commitment to myself and to this work is that I will always do things that scare me, that feel like expansion, that feel like leaps of courage, because how can anyone ask you to do that if I'm not doing it myself? I think one of the cornerstones of the responsibility of any form of teaching and being a student of something is living it, is being in it, is not speaking from a pious place and requesting actions and choices, but actually living those things. I don't know that there's anything more powerful than embodied learning, than embodied behaviors that transcend far beyond what words can do. I also think that when we're authentically in a space, the words just hit different. They hit in a place of truth. All the teachers that I continue to follow, and that includes you, the people who comment, the people who send me feedback, the people who express love, and 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 those are you're all teachers for me. And I love this work. I got to tell you, I just am so in love with my life and with every moment. And one thing I've been looking at just in my experience with my relationship coming to a close romantically is that I've never had more tools than I have now. And that's allowed me to see the evidence that I can show up now. I can show up differently. I can handle this with grace and respect and compassion because I can know that a relationship outcome isn't separate from my self-worth, but I can also consciously audit my life and say, how could I have shown up better? How did I contribute to this? What is my role? Because I know there's growth in that. I used to have shame looking at those things. I used to avoid the truth of who I was. Um, But because I've really developed a lot more emotional resilience, um, it's allowed me this experience to be more introspective without, with healthy shame. You know, you can have healthy shame when you do do something wrong or you make a poor decision. There's a healthy shame that says I shouldn't do that. You know, really in the context of shame, what happens is we make a choice and then we learn that there was a better choice available to us. And that's the invitation. Do we rise and become? Do we implement that new level of knowledge? And one of the main commitments I have made in my life is that I would always live at my highest level of knowledge, that I would never let wisdom escape me. And that has really been correlated or more closely reinforced with just recognizing the temporary rate, nature of life, that there's, <laughs> there's no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait to become, to be who you are, to expand and be the best version of yourself. There's no reason to wait. I don't want to leave this earth with regrets, and I don't think you do either. So let's not. Let's hold each other to that level of accountability that is required to have a really delicious life. And you know, when 
your relationship is your whole life and you lose it, you lose your life. You know, in some sense, that level of grief and I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Um, I've had that feeling. I know what that's like. I don't have that now because my relationship was not my life. It was an aspect of my life. It contributed to my life. I contributed to it. And that's one of the really, the ways that we see relationship first is my relationship isn't giving me what I want. And the real transformation is to ask yourself, what would I, what would my relationship need from me to feel a certain way? And then do that. So here we are, right? So much gratitude to all of you. Oh my gosh, like I can't really express it enough. I'm not sure that words can. I hope that my voice expresses it just in the tone and the emotion that's here. Um, if you could do me the most giant favor, it would be that I ask if you could go to my, uh, wherever you listen to this and give it a five-star review and a written review and share any of the episodes that have really moved you. And if you're afraid to share them, share them because that's personal growth is the expansion of what will people think of me if they know I listen to this thing? You mean they know that you listen to a really great podcast? <laughs> you know, I would really appreciate if you went and filled out that review because it's very helpful and it allows it to get into more people's ears so we can keep spreading this love, keep spreading this knowledge, keep making it so it's okay to be human. I feel like that's the greatest gift I've given myself is the grace to make mistakes and to learn from them and to hold space for other people who do the same. So this week we are, I, I feel like I have, you know, this super celebrity on my podcast this week. Um, I have the holistic psychologist. If you, if you don't know Nicole, um, she is the most phenomenal you know, it, like her work is just amazing. Her Instagram has been growing at more. I think she's growing faster than Instagram. It's pretty crazy. So I had her on the podcast this week. I do not want to delay getting started because she is brilliant and I want to share her knowledge with you. And I'm so excited. So without further ado, here she is. I am so excited to have the holistic psychologist, you, on here. I'm so pumped up for this to finally be because I feel like we've danced beside each other for so long in this, uh, and I've been such a, a loyal fan of yours and, and just loved what you're doing. I definitely, of course, thank you so much for saying that, Mark. I've been dancing alongside of you and, and watching your work. And I agree. I was very much excited when you reached out and looking forward to the day I actually get some more human to human interaction. Right. When we're actually cell to cell rather than cellular to cell, like literally the di right. versus versus digital. And we were just talking before we started recording about how really this movement, this space, this conversation about love and relationships and trauma and all the things, everyone's just ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely attribute, I had no idea signing online um, when I, deci I decided, so long story short, I was developing these holistic methods. They were speaking to me, they were in alignment, and quite honestly, they were helping me heal what I was saddled up for or what I thought was going to be lifetime anxiety. So having so much success, I wanted to start to speak about the work that I was doing because I was not yet doing that work in my practice. I had a very much a standard practice. So long story short, social mm -hmm. media came to be the platform and going on 
I had no idea what to expect. I was a little, there's a little bit of fear in me, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> yeah. of this new model of healing, not only what will people think, but what will my colleagues think in particular? Um, it, it lit like wildfire though. And like you and I were agreeing, I think it's just such a testament to where the collective is in terms of their readiness. I think a lot of people are feeling stuck and frustrated with old models of wellness mm-hmm. in many ways. And I attribute the exponential mind-blowing growth of the community to really be a testament to the evolution in the collective as a whole, which is incredibly inspirational, if you ask me. Isn't it like to get that direct feedback that like, we are ready for what you are afraid to share. Here is the validation to all the fears and the leaps that you are taking for us, which I mean, I know when I first started writing, you know, five years ago, I was so terrified of, well, one, as a man being like, I'm going to talk about all these feelings and I'm going to talk about all these things and all my friends, what are they going to say? All the guys I grew up playing sports with, like, what happened to Mark? He's so sensitive. Although my nickname as a kid was Sensitor. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful space to be in. And I'm wondering in your work as a psychologist and doing it more from that talk therapy, perspective first and then in your own did you really go into that work to sort of like seek to heal yourself was that where it originally formulated from into the field itself Um, I honestly I explore that because as long as I can remember um, I was fascinated I always knew on some intuitive level that psychology was going to be the path for me Mm -hmm. but I don't think it was actually by avenue of wanting to heal myself and or others or heal myself by proxy of others. I actually think it was a fascination, which speaks to me now in terms of why I'm feeling a bit more in alignment with the work I'm doing now. It, I actually think it was a fascination with the mind and the power of the mind that attracted me to the field. Of course, traditionally though, you're, you're there to be a helper and a support. Uh, and as I built my own practice, which was really luckily very successful from the beginning Um, But also as I struggled with my own mental wellness or lack thereof, a lifelong battle with anxiety and panic. And I started to realize that I wasn't really getting better per Mm -hmm. se. I had moments of management of my symptoms. But if I was honest, that was the conversation that I was taught we were having about managing things that you either had or you didn't have. Not cure. The things that, yeah, that cure wasn't a topic of real conversation. And then when I started to find similar patterns in the clients that were coming in weekly to my practice. And then I had my own health crisis engaged in a whole hell of a lot of, of research and self-study yeah. to actually grant, gain some traction in my own healing. At that point, I knew that I had to make a, a more pivot in terms of the work that I was doing practically with, with other people. But I think it was the mind, honestly, Mark, to simply answer that, that drew me into the field a bit more than wanting to heal, but I'm sure on some unconscious level, I I knew I needed to do some healing myself too. (laughs) Of course, right? That we are drawn to it uh, on this space of wanting to understand it. And the power of the mind, I mean, the power of our unconscious, the power of our ability to filter out information that we need or that invalidates beliefs or thoughts or identities. And what is the, because you said that you started to do the transition within yourself to a holistic model. So what did that look like? Like you said that you were suffering from anxiety and panic. And then what dipped your toe into this holistic side? Because of course, I'm sure a lot of people listening are going, are in talk therapy or in coaching are 
you know, they're listening to this podcast. So they're obviously interested in some form of therapeutic intervention. So what was the first dipping of your toe in something that wasn't linear or logical or spoken? Yeah, absolutely. So it was the reality that my anxiety was always a little bit there. And then I started to reach a point where I started to have some physical symptoms, some really scary ones. So as it were to be, my anxiety brand was very much health-based. So I started to faint. I started to forget my client's uh, names in the middle of session, my sentence in the middle of speaking it. Um, I started to get really scared at the physical symptoms more so than the anxiety-based symptoms. So my health anxiety took me online, like, like a good little researcher, like what the hell is wrong with me? Is this that big bad thing that I've been waiting for all along? And what I came to find in my research was a whole other world of science based in epigenetics, based in gut health, based in, you know, psychoneurology, numer, you know, neuroimmunology or the fact of stress, neuro, that very big long word, essentially yeah. that stress on our negative emotions take a toll on our physical body. And I did a lot of reading and I started to realize that I had some tools available to me that were in the form of taking care of my body, viewing myself as a whole body, that there's a body attached to that mind. And I started to make lifestyle based shifts essentially in my life. So it was really, I guess, a physical health crisis that in changing a whole hell of a lot of the way I was living, I came to then heal my anxiety as well. So you know, that gut brain, the uh, as you were saying, the psychoneuroimmunology, that <laughs> space between endocrine immune, Im, immune system and just that whole connection to our nervous system, mm-hmm. how correlated it is. I mean, as the research continues to pile up mm-hmm. about how conflict affects our microbiome, how generations of shit programs us to be ready for shit. You know, just how you watch these patterns in families. And I I was talking to Mark Wolin, who talks about inherited trauma and how to heal it. Uh, I'm sure you know his work well. And he talked about how there's like rats and how if a rat senses a smell and gets an electrical shock that three generations later, even though it's never had a shock, it's still responding to that smell. And it's amazing how as humans, we think that that's not something that would happen for us that we're too conscious for something. Yes. Well, the re- I'm, I'm so happy you're introducing that word because surprisingly the part of the mind that is the most powerful, well, it's more powerful if we let it be, let me put it that way, because our conscious state is our most powerful. It's mm-hmm. where choice comes. It's where we can break maybe some of these conditioning or these habits that for many of us are intergenerationally transmitted. But the part of the mind that in my clinical training I went to a pretty extensive amount of it. I sought my own individual training outside of my school training. I mean, I, I was really looking to look at all different types or to educate myself on all different types of modalities of treatment. You'd be surprised, I'm sure, on some level to hear that the part of our mind that's the most powerful when we're not conscious that is running the show upwards of 95% of our day is the subconscious. And never once in any, in any form of my training were we introduced really to that. I mean, I was taught about what I know to be the areas that are implicated, the hippocampus and the amygdala and all that, but we weren't, it wasn't called the subconscious. We weren't taught that we live in autopilot more often than not. And we weren't taught that this is where we store the accumulation of not only all of our past experiences, but all these intergenerationally transmitted experiences as well. And that's so incredibly powerful. And that was a big pivot 
in terms of the way I conceptualize the mind. And a, a big reason why the word I was he- hearing so consistently in my old practice and still in my new one now, but now I know how to navigate it is stuck. And a large reason why we're stuck in repeating our patterns is because we are allowing that autopilot to run our patterns essentially throughout our day. So when you take a patient or a client through this process, what does it look like? You know, for someone listening, it's like, I am stuck. I learn all this information and I'm not changing or something's just not clicking or I'm going to all this talk therapy. I'm reading all these books and yet I can't seem to shift. So where does the the holistic model that you run people through? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, holistic simply means mind and body. So starting from our foundation, our body, it's really about exploring any possible underlying physiological imbalances that might be contributing. Our brain, logically, is part of our body. So if our body is imbalanced, chances are our brain isn't getting, at minimum, the nutrients that it needs, right? And, and I don't know more extreme end of the spectrum, you know, there might be inflammation occurring, the neurotransmitters that we once believed were located were manufactured and really contained to that brain organ, we now know are, are, are originating in our, in our gut, right? So when we talk about resolving those physiological imbalances, that's the conversation that I'm having with people, right? What are you eating? What are you putting in to your body and, I, and someone listening might be like, oh, why is a psychologist talking about the gut? But that's why, because mm-hmm. our gut is in direct communication with our brain. And if our gut's not healthy, our brain might, might not be getting the nutrients, like I said, the neurotransmitters. Um, and at an extreme, there's inflammation that could be causing some of the emotional and cognitive symptoms that many of us are experiencing. So we want to explore the nutrition, what we're putting in, obviously working to remove the gut damaging foods that are really prolific in the, in the human, in the human diet. Really. What would be like some of those, like your standard, like gluten, so high gluten, sugar, high yeah, sugar. processed sugar, they come to mind, oh, the whole world really of overprocessed food, but definitely a highlighting. I was, I was shocked quite honestly, Mark, when I started to read labels, I am someone who oh, man. likes Me sugar. Too. I oh. want to know that I, see, I, I know, love sugar. I know that it's in the cupcake and I'm going to eat the cupcake. I did not know that it was in my salad dressing, in my barbecue sauce, in my, on my ham at times. I mean, I actually saw a piece of salmon that had sugar on it. I'm not sure why. So it really, it's, it's the amount I think of those items. And the reality is that most of us, most of our human bodies don't tolerate those items. Well, well it's such a, it's such an addictive process too. Like it's hitting these dopamine centers. It's a way of distracting ourselves from emotional pain. And it's such a celebratory, celebratory way of avoiding mm-hmm. pain. I mean, I love gummy bears, you know, but yeah. I don't, you know, I realize like they're like a dose for me, you know, I know that yeah. I crave them when I feel emotional imbalance. I crave them when I feel feelings mm-hmm. I don't want to feel. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'll just refrain from the gummy bear for a minute. So you're saying like uh, all those standard things that we would know of, like yeah, gluten, yeah, sugar, yeah. although for some people may be new information mm-hmm. and any others. Yeah. And I think the thing just to highlight about food is food is incredibly complicated. We eat for many different reasons and we assign many different meanings to food. So saying clean up your diet is much easier said for many of us than done because there are emotional and deeper subconscious. So one of mine is I have a mother who's very emotionally absent in, in pretty much all ways. Our point of contact, I come from a big Italian family, was around, you guessed it, food. 
So for me, I mean, the, the loaded message of food is connections. Food is love from my mother really made it difficult. And I had, I had quite a negative uh, relationship with food for some time. So while I just throw these out so simply for a lot of us to speak to your point too, there are deeper patterns that we're going to need to break, but we want to make sure we're eating sleep in terms of keeping our body physiologically balanced, incredibly important not very uh, uh, underutilized tool. Um, a lot of us humans are not sleeping the amount that we need to be sleeping or not sleeping. Some of it is, you know, work related. We, we are working night shift or rotating shift, but sleep within the, our circadian rhythm is, inc- if we can, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Another big area of the body that I highlight because a lot of us are living in a body that whose nervous system is mm-hmm. dysregulated in one direction or the other. We're either in hyperactive sympathetic activation or fight or flight. That was me coming from a very chaotic feeling, always anxious, surprise, mm-hmm. right? Family environment. I was pretty much living my life in survival mode or in fight or flight. That's overactivation of actually a nervous system, which obviously the nervous system controls pretty much all of our bodily processes. There's also then overactivation of our parasympathetic or our rest and digest nervous system with symptoms that mimic what universally we, we come to define as depression. I have low energy, I have apathy, I have low interest, mm. low motivation. That sometimes is a direct result of an overactive parasympathetic. A healthy human, if you will, wants to be able to very versatility. I just made that word up, maybe, but in a very versatile way, go back and forth between those nervous systems. More often than not, though, some of us become stuck. The very holistic, practical tool that I'm always endorsing is breathwork. Breathwork is an incredibly oh, valuable so powerful. practice, right? Where we can tone our vagal nerve, which helps us to shift between those nervous systems as needed. So that, that we, be- really- we become more attuned to it, that we are able yes. to uh, moderate our, our parasympathetic response. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a fascinating, like meditation and uh, breath work being such great ways to not only regulate, but also to monitor, you know, if you don't have that space, but yeah, so it's, so meditation, breath work, um, is there any other modalities that you encourage to be able to bring and learn how to get that nervous system back? Because I would imagine that's also part of the integration of the psychotherapy or the stuff that you were doing as well. Yeah. So that brings, I think, me shifting up then to the mind. Okay. So that's that moving lot, up the spinal cord. Yeah. Because a lot of times we become dysregulated based on how we're perceiving or the meanings that we're assigning or that lack of space where we're reacting to events in our current environment, or as I say, we're living them on in our mental internal world. And quite simply, we're overstressing ourselves out in absence of an actual external stressor. I mean, a prime example of that is worst case scenario thinking. If I sit here on my couch, very luxuriating back, very calm, I, if I'm worrying about the calamity that might happen tomorrow, might not, before I know it, I'm inducing a stress response in Mm. my body. So developing what I call self, the act of self-observation, creating that space where I can actually see what's happening as objectively as possible, see the internal meaning that I'm assigning to it, deciding if that applies to the current experience and redirecting my attention out of my thoughts that if I spend too much time in there, I'll be having, inducing a feeling about them. So that's a really good bridge. And that 
is a foundational tool. Developing the ability to see, if you will, our internal world is where we take that first step to create then change in our internal world. To start to think about how we think, to start to step into that space of what is a metacognition. Yeah. You know, and that's a, I, I didn't start to think about how I thought till my world sort of imploded, you know, and I think that's for a lot of us when we hit rock bottom, whatever that might mean. And it doesn't have to be um, like a drug induced. It can be a breakup. It can be a trauma response, you know, an automated response. It could be like, I'm just not showing up how I want to show up. But it, you don't usually think about it till you're not getting results that you want, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think to a large extent, we become forced, for lack of a better word, to change. Change happens, essentially. This is how I always put it. When we cannot, ima- we cannot tolerate things staying as they are, it almost we become necessitated to whether it's explore the role we're playing or, or view the way we're thinking so that we can take some ownership and then creating change. But I agree with you. I think a lot of times that comes when we're at a a bottom or when we feel we need to, or else the familiar for a lot of us is the most comfortable path. Even if logically it's not getting us the life or the results that we want overall, that which is familiar is always the most attractive to our mind. Our mind believes the familiar, the predictable is safe. Well, people are obviously very hungry for a holistic approach. They're very hungry for this access point to say, okay, I'm experiencing some form of psychological relational distress. I never thought about my diet. I never thought about, you know, the, um, what meaning I assign to things that happen in my life. Like until you learn it, you don't realize that you're this completely powerful computer, your brain is, which is not who you are, and that you have programs that you didn't even want in there that you consider to be true without ever saying, is that true? Yeah, that's in, we are incredibly powerful and you're right. So the, the description I give, and this is, this is life on repeat, is what we believe happens before we come to observe otherwise. And this, I think, does gear us up to feel much more helpless and powerless just a really simple illustration thing happens in the world. I feel some kind of way. I do some kind of thing. Usually I do the most habitual thing. I always do when I feel that kind of way mm-hmm. we come to realize has been the case all along thing happens in the world. I run it through a filter. That's a belief or a meaning that I've assigned that I've carried from some version or extensive, you know, kind of consistent past experiences that to speak to your point might not have been mine to begin with, that is what results in that kind of feeling and then that kind of reaction. So as distressing as that awareness might be for some of us, and it is, at least that can shift us from that more powerless, I have no control, the world happens to me mode that I think a lot of us unfortunately live in, me Mm -hmm. included, to, to speak to your very beautiful point, a very much more powerful creator or participant, at least at first, in my daily reality. And then when I can harness the power, I become the creator. So what ways do you use? Like what tools do you use with people? One to shift them from that, like this happens to me to this happens for me, or I'm in power. And then also beginning to discover the meaning, you know, to, to be, cause that's like one is a big shift because all of a sudden now you can observe thought. So how do you get them from the two to four? Yeah, absolutely. So the the tool that I'm always professing is mental exercise of meditation. And I say that because there's a million different types of ways to meditate. There's a million different intentions around which we meditate. 
But I believe that what is traditionally you know, thought to be the, the mindfulness-based meditation, well, that's our goal, is to separate ourselves from our thoughts, teach ourselves how to view our thoughts non-judgmentally or, or with neutrality, right? And really toning a muscle that we all are gifted with, that is the most incredible muscle we have as humans, which is the attentional muscle, where we direct our attention. I call it a muscle because we all have choice. We, we, we often just don't capitalize or harness or practice that choice. So I suggest meditation to begin because that's a, it's hard. It's work. It's effortful. Yeah, it is. And it's hard as hell to do that in real life when life is coming at us. So sitting oh, right in a quiet room with my eyes closed, maybe I have a guide in my ears helping me through, which is fine, right? Developing just a habit. And the beautiful part of our brain is what, is what we call like neuroplastic. It's changeable. So mm-hmm. the more, that's why I call it an exercise. Literally, it's mental training. So the more we train our brain to do that, our goal then is ultimately, and I share this often because I think a lot of times, a lot of meditators who've been meditating for a very long time are not getting the full impact of the practice of meditation. Because yes, while the act of consistently meditating does just naturally train the brain, until we begin to observe ourselves and our thoughts objectively throughout our day and choose where we put our attention, I believe we're limiting ourselves. So first I talk about developing that mental muscle. And then we talk about building the bridge where I'm practicing that daily so that I'm quite honestly observing not only my external world a bit more objectively, but my internal world. And then that gives me the eyes to see, if you will, those narratives and those stories. And what we discover when we look consistently enough is there's patterns, Mm. there's stories that we revisit and that we're very habitual, even in our thoughts. We tend to think and assign the same meanings and that induce the same feelings time and time again. That contains incredibly valuable data because that's what's stored in that subconscious of ours. It's so crazy to me to think about how addicted we are to the same chemical reactions, which is from food, which is from thoughts, which is from feelings that are also often most of the time dysfunctional, unfortunately not good for us. We often assign meanings that hurt us. You know, like when a relationship ends, most people go, I wasn't good enough for them to stay and choose me. And there's so many other ways to see a relationship ending. Also seeing it not as a failure, you know, like seeing all these different ways we could assign meaning. And I know at least in my own experience, that's one of the most powerful shifts we can do Mm -hmm. is like taking control of the narratives. Yeah, I totally agree. But you're right. There's, I call it emotional addiction. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, because I think a lot of times we think when we think of addiction, we think we're seeking something pleasurable. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the removal of something negative. But the way I say it is because we become, become very habitual. So following the train, right? I think the same thoughts long enough. I induce what when I define a feeling, I mean that is a physiological change in the body, that are hormones that get released. There are neurotransmitters. There's energy involved that translates now from the thought to the body. Now I'm having a physical experience. Okay. So what my body then becomes is familiar. And the way I describe the way the subconscious works in each and every one of us, because we all have one, is we, we, we're so habitual over time that I describe it as, as like a little avatar. It is memorized each and every one of us. So logically, and this is why I believe that just having insight-based talk version therapy, where I just, I can have all of the insight in the world and know exactly what I want to do differently in the world, why it's so hard to change is because even if logically I know 
this new behavior or habit, or I want to start to affirm new thoughts, think new thoughts. I want to feel differently about myself in the world. When I go to do that, our subconscious is online because it's always online and it registers life really in a very, it's a very simplistic explanation, but it registers life in a very dichotomous way Mm -hmm. with the two ends being familiar equals predictable, safe, unpredictable equals possibly unsafe. Mm. Right. So one of two things happens, and this is the way I describe it. I call it mental resistance. We either get our subconscious produces all of the million and one reasons why not to do this unfamiliar, uncomfortable, possibly unsafe thing. And, or some of us get it in our body. We start to feel uncomfortable crawling out of our skin, just different than we normally feel. And if we listen to it, we, before we know it, are right back into that rut of familiarity, even if logically, like you're saying, so that happens with the chemicals in our body too. So if I'm someone, this is my, my, my personal example, all, all I felt my whole life, like I said earlier, shared earlier, was anxiety, was mm-hmm. on edge, was hypervigilance. If you were to hear me kind of espouse or proclaim what I want in life, you would always, I'm a hippie at heart. I, I want peace. I just want peace <laughs> in every moment in time, right? When I have moments of peace, when nothing's actually happening per se to stress me out, what I began to notice, because my body was not used to peace, it was used to stress, I would do one of two things. I would do what I call tick around because I had an agitation and I'd be cleaning the house or I had to get my energy out somehow, or I'd agitate interpersonally, my partner usually bore the brunt of that. And I'd <laughs> God bless. God bless. You know, so sorry. I, <laughs> I pick something to stir and to agitate myself. So before I know it, I was having that full blown stress response that I was used to. That you created, that you were living in. Is that from my mind? Man, it's so fascinating that the moment we are absent of the thing that causes us our stress response, or as you're saying, the familiarity, there's a safety in familiarity, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it hurts us, even if it's chaos, love is getting coded as conflict. And then all of a sudden, we're creating and sabotaging peace in order to get that because I certainly can relate to your hypervigilance. You know, I was the youngest in my family. I didn't, I always wanted my mom to not be in stress. Um, and I was my, I have an older brother and sister and I often felt like they were closer than we, than I was to them. And so there always was this hypervigilance of like, where do I fit? Am I okay? And, and to know that when it was calm and someone could show up for me, I had such a hard time receiving it. I still, you know, like still struggle that my worth has to meet those moments that I have to expand to receive. Uh, And it's so easy, I think, for people in work like you and I are in that our work becomes a place where we're giving, where we're providing, where we're helping and to actually have someone show up for us, which I'm sure most people listening, if not all, are probably identify on some level as empathic. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy for an empathic person to lack boundaries and to not be able to receive because we're so busy in our survival strategy of making sure everything's, yes. you know, okay yeah. around us. Absolutely. Another way this played out for me yeah. is through mere productivity, because I had underlying anxiety, I was a very high performer in school and in sports. Mm. So that became my tick, my outlet. And then mm. I got rewarded, right? That good grades get rewarded more or less in school, definitely got rewarded in my family as did my performance at sport. So for me, I shifted it into what could outwardly appear 
product proactive, pro like healthier, adaptive, societally rewarded. Societally, right. It yeah. looked good on the outside, but really it was just masking everything that was underneath and was also wrapped up around my worth. It was how I was with that emotionally absent mother seen and heard in my family in absence of just being seen and heard for the unique little star seed that I was. So I say that because I think a lot of us in the society that many of us live in fall into using productivity to mask or distract from or get the feel goods externally when maybe there's something deeper that's going on or a deeper wound or something, you know, a deeper need overall. That we find in the stillness, that we find in the calm, that we, where there, where, you know, I've, I found that when I first started meditating, there was anything but peace in my meditation. It was chaos, man. I, I remember five minutes being like, Five hours. hours. Oh, my God. And now, like, 40 minutes is five minutes. So, it's, it's quite fascinating how, like you said, flexing a muscle. I never thought of it that way, but it really has been that consistent. Also, knowing I got asked once, like, how do you keep it all together? I'm like, I don't. That's actually, I don't. That's what it means to be human is not to have a perfect meditation schedule and a perfect, like, don't eat a cookie. God damn, cookies are great. Yes, they are. I'm always a bigger proponent of, of just conscious choice, mm. you know, meaning I show up, I make the choice. And some days I make the choice to keep all my routines in line. And some days I don't. And when I make the choice not to, I know what comes on the, and this is for food too. Mm -hmm. when I pick up the ice cream like I did this weekend. I know how sugar, processed sugar makes me feel. And I make that choice to dig right in because it's goddamn good to speak to your point. But I'm online, I'm conscious, and I'm looking at the big picture of it. And I think that applies to life. There are some days where, you know, I, I choose not to engage or do whatever it is in terms of maybe my routine or my behavior. And I know what comes on the other side of it. And I also know how much leeway I have to mm -hmm. consistently make the choice not to before I start to accumulate the negative effects physically and emotionally in my world. And that's different for each of us. So it's really a process of self-exploration and learning ourselves so that we can make those most informed conscious choices for ourselves. Yeah. What a powerful thing to recognize, but also stay in the integrity of knowing what are your edges. Like you were saying, like, you know, the cost of, which is a conscious choice to accept the cost, whether you're more reactive, which means you're going to have to be more emotionally attuned, which, you know, all the different things to know when you, like, I certainly have fallen out of this where you go so far without doing a workout that you're like, well, now the gym's not part of my life anymore, you know, and now I need to do the very much more challenging work of building new habits again. Yeah. 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 And that happens. And I talk often with my clients because what we're looking for with these holistic tools mm -hmm. are, are habits. We need them, unfortunately, to be consistent, to carry impact. And I am always a proponent because I think what happens is say we were doing five things and say we fell off of two of them. And we think we can go back to doing all five things as soon as we come to the consciousness and realize we have to do those five things. Often that's not what it, what ha what's helpful. I, I, my big concept I always talk about is a small daily promise, which might mean we do three things for maybe four or five consistent days. And then we add a fourth thing in, because like I was saying earlier, change is hard and it's a challenge to our subconscious. However, I also say in those periods of time where I go not doing it each and every time I rebuild my habits, I'm depositing in self-trust, meaning mm. I now know that 
there's only so much time that I will allow myself to go. And even if it's hard to get back, I know the gym and I hate this knowing because I don't love working out, but I know the gym has to be part of my daily wellness or consistently enough. So I now trust myself, even if I start to wear the effects of not going to the gym or not going as rigorously, you know, kind of working out as rigorously to the gym, I do start to wear those emotional effects for me. It's in terms of that agitation and that reactivity. I now don't doubt myself though. I might be like, Ooh, you know, mm, don't like to be in this space back to the gym. I go and maybe I have to rebuild and maybe I'm sore and it doesn't feel great, but I don't ever question now whether or not I'll go back. I know I will because mm. I know where that descent ends up and I don't choose that life for myself. So how did you transition from a productivity performance-based sort of, um, you know, knowing that you're going to get affirmation from that to a space of being able to sit in peace and that being more of like, how did you move through that storm? Was it a storm? What, yeah, what happened? Absolutely. So a lot of it was separating myself from all of the shoulds, all of the narratives that would, you know, kind of propel me into making those productivity based choices. A lot of it hinged on me creating foundational physiological and nervous system regulation. It allowed my body to more comfortably embody peace. I think that was, that were two really big proponents on the deepest level. It was learning how to just be enough as I am. It was mm. that deeper level of acceptance where I stopped looking for outward feedback about, and a lot of us do this. I actually believe it's natural. It's how we gain information about how we fit into the world. It begins very early. And like I said, school systems, you know, kind of, I think, strengthen that tendency. So I say that to share, I believe it's all of us as adults job then to internalize and to decide how we are and who we are separate from how the world is telling us or what the world is rewarding about us. So that was my deepest work is to feel enough in a sense to allow myself to feel and be enough just as I was, regardless of how I was performing or what award I was winning. And that was the deeper journey for me. Mm, That's such a transition that goes from, which I totally agree with you that the it is evolutionarily beneficial to be accepted by the people outside of us, you know, our families, our culture, our religion, which are often all synonymous mm-hmm. to move to this place of cultivated self-worth from within rather than validated self-worth from out. And that is a huge shift. There's a bridge between those two spaces that is going from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And in that space of unfamiliar is obviously where all the magic is, where we discover new edges of ourselves, where we discover that we don't need you to say you're worthy. I need myself to say it. And it comes through boundaries. It comes through, you know, you know, in your work with, was a lot of your healing work done within how you started to show up within your own family system? Yeah. So my, my family played a, a core piece um, in a very interesting way. So my family is very enmeshed and codependent. Mm-hmm. I have a very, I have a chronically ill mother that was pretty much chronically ill my entire life. I also have a very chronically, so I too am the youngest. My sister is 15 years older than me who has extreme chronic illness herself. And my brother is 18 years older than me. So by the time I came around, my brother more or less, as far as I know it, I, we don't, was pretty much out of the picture. But mm-hmm. so my, my system, essentially my family system was my mom, my dad, and my sister. And we had what's called a very enmeshed, so a boundaryless relationship. So mainly I kind of do it like a solar system. The orbit was around my mother. 
Mm-hmm. All of the focus was on my mom, how well or not well she was in any given moment. What we kind really, of illness did she have, if you don't mind me asking? Um, uh, nothing that's ever been really diagnosable. I believe, honestly, it was very psychosomatic. She has an incredibly traumatic childhood mm-hmm. that I believe was exacerbated. So my sister um, has had had a trach when she was very young. She had her throat collapse as a result of a very severe asthma attack. So my parents wow. had to learn how to change a trach when she was about three years old. Wow. I'm 37. So she's eight. So it was very, very back in the day where parents, you know, caring for a, a child in that critical of a condition was, was a lot. She also had scoliosis. And when I was three, she had a pretty severe back surgery. So my mom has her own trauma around loss. Her father dropped dead when she was in her early twenties. So long story short, my sister was very much, I think a source of my mom's stress and re-traumatization. So my mom, it was was leg issues. It was called arthritis. Maybe it was called fibromyalgia. It turned into heart issues. So it was kind of one of those hidden illnesses that kind of morphs into more or less though. It led her to spend most of her life in bed. Um, She was very present at my sporting events, which is why I think that carried so much meaning for me. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, she was not present and emotionally Uh, She was very, very absent. So when I started to realize that I was engaging not only with them, but in a very meshed codependent way, and that there was carrying a lot of negative effects in my healing, every, I was still being, my mom's chronic illness was very active when I was starting to engage in my healing journey. I was all, I come from a family is everything motto mantra. So I was always expected to be there, whether it was the hospital appointments, the doctor's appointments, family dinner, Sundays, whatever it was. So boundaries for me was incredibly important and incredibly difficult. So beginning to put a little bit of limits on how not only physically and in terms of my time, I was able to invest in my family, but also emotionally. And it was really a difficult process. Um, they, a lot of, a lot of negative reactions, they made it really very hard for me to maintain my boundaries. Part of the complication, cause this won't apply to everyone. They all live under the same roof. Mm. My mom, my dad, and my sister who had got, has gotten divorced in, in the years lives there with my nephew. So going over to home meant going to all of them. So yeah, I had, integrating when, yourself deep, right. like there's no kind of toe in the water. It's and like I try, full and immersion. I, I try, Oh, can I pluck my sister out and have this type of relationship over here that doesn't orbit around my mom? Mm, not so much. Oh, wow. can I have some version of a satisfying relationship? With my mom, mm, not so much. What about my dad? So I tried every iteration and ultimately I, I came to the very difficult decision that I had a, had a break of contact entirely, at least for the foreseeable future so that I can gain some traction in my own healing with uncertainty really of what happens next. I'm still in that mode. Um, I'm still unable to have a relationship with them. I don't know what the future brings. I know that this isn't a decision that is easy or for everyone, but given the dynamics in my house, it felt what was necessary. So while it was difficult, honestly, Mark, I believe creating that space for myself actually did allow me to heal. And then I had to start to break those patterns and habits that I carried in that more codependent and meshed way that I was living in all of my other relationships. When you step out of that system, all of a sudden you're like left with who you are. And I, I know for me, when I move cities, 
that was a big thing that all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I'm not in these agreements that I've made unconsciously or consciously, but usually unconsciously. And now I wait, I get to be who I want to be. I get to, and I, I honor the courage that it takes in that. And I, I just want to say thank you for the vulnerability and the openness around that, because to put a boundary with what is biologically your core attachment, where you frame safety from, to do that is such a courageous courageous step because you are modeling what you were worthy of at being born through that portal, you know, and that's such a, I couldn't even imagine what that's like. So I just want to honor the bravery that that takes. I appreciate you saying that it's, it, it was not a decision that I made lightly. I tried every which way of Sunday to not have, and I still have moments. I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, I can still get nostalgic. I can still imagine some idealized scenario where somehow they're not them and they don't, it doesn't, it's not like this because I think in acceptance, we're accepting two things. We're accepting that which was in a very conscious way mm-hmm. that I was very defended against. I, 10 years ago, you never would have heard me say codependent or a mesh. Yeah, not even my though, family. Even though it's, it's glaringly obvious I would never have said that. I was not ready to ex- accept that at that time. And I'm also accepting the very real possibility that this is this might be what it is. I'm not saying that people in relationships can't change because they can 100%. Yeah, of course. But part of me has to settle into the reality that it also might not. And I have to make peace with that. And to speak to your point that I, I really appreciate you acknowledging being able to finally connect with the person that was authentically me beneath all of this has been beyond empowering and motivating. So I don't have to know at this point what happens next. Uh, And I know now that at least at this point, I'm not ready to figure out if re-engagement can happen because I still have healing to do, Mm -hmm. but the growth and the me that I've now been able to connect to has made all of the pain worth it. Well, I think, the the um, the amount of self trust that you create by knowing you have your own back in the most difficult of scenario, which is saying no to mom, you know, like disconnecting from mom, having a boundary with something that at the, I mean, the chorus part of our human experience is to want to have a healthy, balanced relationship with a parent, especially our mother, um, but to know that you are cultivating that and breaking. I would imagine generations of that fractured relationship is really testament to your courage and your work. And I, and I think that's why your work is so resonant for so many people, because it's not born from a, uh, an ivory tower academic space. It's like your work is literally through you. It's, this is me. I'm in the, you know, I say often to the, the, the people that I get to be part of a community with that I'm in the trenches with you. This is anyone who says they have it all figured out is full of shit. Run from them because that's part of the growth of human, of the human experience is none of us really know what we're doing. We're sort of doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. And I think an incredible healing part of it for me was finding that community of other humans that were experiencing what I experienced and healing the way that I was healing. And I think part of what I aspire to do in sharing my story is historically, I think societally, we've termed, you know, the, the statement is the big T of trauma, right? We've termed these very glaring things that are the issues. And if you've experienced any one of those things, the abuse and neglect, you know, the kind of big things, if you experience them, then we can understand, you know, why you're struggling and why you carry the symptoms or the repercussions or the wounds from those. Mm-hmm. We never really have talked about 
all of the other wounds and dynamics that aren't serving us into adulthood that we're carrying. So this was part of my confusion too, because I will always describe us humans, however you think we arrive on this planet using two adjectives, intuitive and adaptive, meaning we always have that internal sense of what's going on, you know? And I think that that's just an, an incredible part of, 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 of us and of life. And what became really confusing for me is having, having like going about life and seeing myself wear the consequences and not really be as balanced or as healthy or as, you know, kind of emotionally, you know, kind of uh, uh, balanced, use that word again, that I want it to be, but not really having the why. Well, okay, I, I didn't have this or I didn't have that. So what's wrong with me? So another, I think, you know, avenue. Like, that I like rank, to think of, do you mean like ranking your trauma in some sense or like yeah, comparing in, it to in other people? Yeah. The tendency that we, I think we generally as humans have a tendency to compare, but like, oh, like I said, I think societally we've, we've kind of put these stamps on certain past or events that are traumatic and we really haven't talked about the whole spectrum. And I think a lot of people that relate to when I share my own story are relating to this relief that, Oh, okay. I don't have to check. There's other, these big boxes, there's other ways and reasons that I might be struggling in the way that I am now. And as I will always say with understanding and awareness comes the possibility to then begin to break some of those patterns. Yeah. And the responsibility of our own healing. You know, I was talking to Julie Gottman and she defined trauma as anything that we can't prepare for. And I thought that was such a beautiful, broad spectrum of like gives us all permission to literally have a massive trauma because our partner leaves us one day or our dad never came home or it could be something simple. Like, I mean, I know people who have a massive imprint in their life from being forgotten on a date, a day trip with their school. And then they're like, I'm someone who gets forgotten, even though that's, you know, cause the meaning they assign, but that's what five-year-olds do. That's what eight-year-olds do is they say, when something goes wrong in my world, it's because of me. Yeah. And man, which is such a survival strategy, of course, because we look to our family for safety and we look to our family for food. But as a adult, that it doesn't help us anymore. We stay in these loops that are just painful loops of familiarity that invite this space of, okay, what happens if I did set that boundary? What if I did say no? Yeah. Oh, I'm wondering for you, where does, um, cause I think I saw on your arm, is that a tattoo of the chakra system? Mm-hmm. Right. So my relationship to spirituality has been further and further invited. You know, I grew up Catholic, so I have a bit of a rejection of, no, I don't have a bit. I have a massive rejection of formal organized religion because it was such a source of shame for me um, and not education, not, it was just a lot of miseducation. Yeah. And then I, I see the, the same tr- experience. So I can wholeheartedly. Yeah. You're Italian. So that's like, that's like Catholicism on steroids, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm Irish though. So the guilt is yeah. there. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering like for you, where has spirituality integrated itself in that holistic approach, or at least in your own? Cause I'm curious about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I like you was very much in, in rejection of any of those concepts I think really until I, until I began to heal on a deeper level. And, and so now, I mean, you'll, when you hear me talk about the human, I, I talk about my body, soul or spirit. 
I do think that there's, you know, kind of that deeper entity that we all mm. struggle to really define, you know, what it is or what it means. But I define, I, I know that it's there, you know, I work mm. to connect with it. I, I believe that there's a, a collectiveness about it where in some ways, in many ways, really, we're all interconnected in that very kind of core entity of us. So I've been cultivating it and I, it's a very big part of my practice. I think a lot of my struggle historically, not, you know, in life, but also mainly in, in my professional world was a lack of alignment between, I've obviously already talked about the lack of balance in my body and in my mind, but I think in my, in my soul system as well. Um, and I think a lot of humans out there experience a similar misalignment and and that's I think the way I conceptualize it that's the way I think about it that's why I explore it in my world and I cultivate more moments of making sure I'm remaining as connected to that deeper part of me as I can yeah I find that for me a lot of the um like I'm going through I just went through a breakup and through that breakup I've experienced a lot of um one through that ending has felt like the acknowledgement that all things end, you know, that there is an ending to all things, but there's not a less love. There's not an, you know, there's an impermanence to life though, that is really true. And in confronting that ending, which has just been the container of the relationship has changed to confronting the value of my own life in each breath. And who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? How do I want to be remembered? What meaning do I want to give to things? Is it helping me or hurting me? And really, um, I think in all of those moments, meditation has really extended for me the space between reaction and response. Even though the time is not any different, it, it turned three seconds into 30. Yeah. You know, and this yeah. spiritual space of being like, okay, we're so blessed to be here right now. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think it's within that space that we can begin to reorganize and apply those concepts so that we can all aspire to make choices that are more in alignment with that spirit, soul, highest self, whatever it is, because the reaction for most of us is being driven by that old conditioning, mm -hmm. those old beliefs, those old patterns, old stories that often like we were both agreeing with earlier, aren't us. So it's within that space that I actually think we can discover authentically who we are and then therefore choose to begin to show up in the world as that version of us. It's crazy how when we connect to that, that deeper level of empathy and compassion for ourselves, then you can't sling mud at someone else. You can't be unkind because you feel the inherent connection of what it means to hear those words yourself. Yes. Yep. Yes, I, I agree. And some you'll often hear me talk about what I call interdependence. But really, that's kind of I want to be self-sufficient, meet my needs. And then like you, were, you know, earlier, I agree with you. We are all geared to connect and benefit from connecting with others. So I'll sometimes hear in response or reaction or questioning when I when I speak like that, people will say, understandably so. Well, does that mean at the expense of others or are you going to hurt others or violate mm -hmm. others in this all unis? And no, because I agree with you, because when you start to see others as an extension of you, I don't, I don't choose then to show up in the world as someone who's going to be violating or disrespectful or inconsiderate or unkind, because I actually view others now differently and not differently in so much as part of, of me. So I do agree with you, your concept of other shifts, 
But I understand where people are, are coming from, what they're hearing in, in that model. But I think when you really do connect the university universality of it all, it, I agree with you. It's, it's, you don't want to show up in a way that's hurtful. And it makes it hard to make those choices to hurt another. Yeah, and you, I, I get what you're saying because I hear that a lot when you when we talk about things like self care or boundaries that people who have been left or who have felt like their partner just withdrew from them go, well, you can't just do things at the cost of other people. You can't just, dis, um, you know, people are not just commodities. And we live in this world where relationships are just easy come, easy go. I actually don't believe that. I, uh, I actually believe that if we leave relationships too early now, we stayed far too long before. So where are we happy? You know, it's the meaning we give to things. It's the way we see the world. I personally don't see that this world is a very commoditized relationship world. I see that it's, um, I think young people today, um, I don't know if I qualify as that anymore, but I think I'm like right in the middle where I'm going to get called old by some people and young by others. Um, but I really think that we're in this time where young people today care more about our planet, care more about the impact. They're stepping more away from this incorporated, you know, systems of greed that we're like, hey, we have a planet that we're part of, that if we don't take care of, other people aren't going to be okay. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And and I, I speak in terms of, of filters because I think you could look and try to find the negative out there. There will always be, right? Mm-hmm. The yin and the yang, the dark and the light, that's there. But you could also choose to look at all of the beauty and the love. And I agree with you. I am so inspired at these younger and younger generations. Oh my gosh. All of the conscious parents that I now work with, you know, and that are healing themselves. So then in part and break these patterns, I'm thrilled to see these younger generations continue to grow and evolve and and even hopeful. But like I said, I talk in terms of filters because you could just as easily turn on all the news outlets and look at all the shit. Or you could start to look at all of the beauty that's just as equally there. If mm. Amen. I mean, that is such a good way to leave people. I love right? it. Because on that note, what a beautiful message. But yeah. Right? To, to start to notice. Mm-hmm. And that is part of awareness. That is part of this breath. I had a moment the other day where I woke up and I just took a breath and I opened my eyes and I'm like, I'm still here. Let's go. And I'm so thankful that you chose to exchange your time for this because I know that's the one resource we can't get back. And that means the world to me. And I know it will mean the world to everyone listening. So thank you for stepping into your gifts and taking the very courageous path that you have taken to also, in some ways, and not some, always um, be a rebel in your own right in your work. And, And so thank you. Of course. I truly appreciate you saying that. And, and um, thank you for having me. And it's people like you that are speaking to me and interested in my message and sharing similar messages that the collective is shifting. So I'm ever indebted and honored to be part of the communities that I'm now finding myself part of. So thank you, Mark. Hmm, you're so welcome. And so where can people find you? I'll link everyone, all the things out in the show notes. So anything you mention, we'll just make sure that people yeah. have. So where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. My, my main hub is is pretty much Instagram at the dot holistic dot psychologist. I'm on there daily. I'm in. Yeah, my you crush it on there. 
I release everything via Instagram. So if it's coming out, you're, you're going to hear about it over Instagram. I do have a YouTube channel, the holistic psychologist videos coming out every Sunday. You'll also hear about those on Instagram. I also have a website at your holistic psychologist.com. And on there, this is also linked in Instagram. I try to make it easy is an email list where I send out emails on Sunday about what's going on, what's coming up. And then I often release free tools and the free tool that is getting a lot of traction and helping a lot lot of people heal these days is what I call the future self journal. So if you head over to my website and sign up now, that will come directly to your inbox. I've seen so many images tagged of that. I love it. And I will make sure this is all let out. Make sure you follow her on Instagram because the content comes out all the time and it's amazing. And I've also done your um, inner child uh, meditation that you have on YouTube, healing the inner child. So good. So thank you for all that you do. And um, I'm so grateful. Yeah, I appreciate it. Many more meditations to come. I have that one and a breath one, but I'm very interested in continuing to to put some meditations out there to help the newbies have a guide and help them develop everything that you want. Thank you so much.